Hey everyone, Alex Renneman here with Living Unleashed, and I'm bringing a great episode today. I hope you're hope you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. We're we're talking with Mike Masterman of Extreme Endeavors, which is a he's the founder and president, and that's a company that services water districts here in our communities around West Virginia, but also around the world. He's doing some really cool stuff in Africa and and beyond. Um, some, some neat stories along the way in his journey. Uh, you know, you, you'll be able to hear how how climbing a a uh, an antenna in Green Bank during freezing weather ultimately was part of what led him to a uh, running facility in Antarctica. Uh, so it's, it's really cool. Uh, lots of neat stuff. Uh, he's also an author. He wrote Extreme Endeavors, an, an entrepreneur's journey from Antarctica to Ethiopia. Lots packed in there, available wherever you get uh, get books, Amazon and whatnot. Um, this is this is a neat story. Lots of, of lessons around entrepreneurship and and uh, some some nuggets here or there about uh, what strength he he can pull from West Virginia here. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And uh, we'll, without further ado, we'll get right into it. Thank you. I, I I don't even know where to start with you, dude. You you do so much. You've been in so many cool things. I just want to jump all in at once. But yeah, I mean, you're obviously you're a founder, you're a president, you're an author, an entrepreneur, an adventure, an iconoclast. I mean, I, I could throw all kinds of things at you. But before we get into some of the awesome stuff you're doing, have done, plan to do, I'd love to start with just a little bit of your story. Like, like who who is Mike Masterman? Where where'd you come from? What got you here? All that good stuff. Well, I, I actually came from Washington State, um, where I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. You know, backpacking, hiking out there, um, and uh, I went to college, became an electrical engineer. Um, I actually came out here because of the observatory. Uh, it was, you know, back in the 90s, that was one of the coolest scientific research centers. And um, you, you couldn't ask for a better place to learn uh, when you're first starting out your career. So I, I came there. I left West Virginia for about six, seven, eight years, uh, traveled the world, um, did several. I, I basically lived as a bum around the world. Um, I, uh, I would take all jobs in Antarctica. Uh, doing scientific research, and when I was completed with those, I would just travel the world and did some work for you know Carnegie Mellon, University of Chicago, Princeton University, and stuff like that. Uh, but then I just decided I I have to uh, I don't know if you call it growing up or becoming an adult or what, but I decided I got to settle down and I started my own business. Wow, that that's awesome. I I got to ask, so you you're pretty adventurous, dude. I mean, you've got lots of things on your docket of things you've done that. That I mean, some of us maybe have dreamed of doing some of those things, or might be interested in doing some of those things. But you you went out and, and done them. I'd love. It was there. Is there like stories? There's moments in time when you were a child or a youth where you decided your your, your adventurous nature just kind of started growing. Maybe events along the way that kind of points out. Yeah, maybe maybe they're awesome, but also maybe got you a little sideways sometimes with folks. Well, I, I think one of the biggest realizations was when I was 11 years old. Um, I talked about going wanting to go try backpacking. And my grandmother put two sandwiches, a blanket, and a 38 special in a backpack and sent me out. Uh, so um, my grandparents were actually, uh, my, my grandfather was the second white boy ever born in Homer, Alaska. Oh, wow. When he was 15, his parents passed away. So he ended up becoming a hobo, hopping freight trains, knowing not what else to do, ended up down in Mexico, where he ended up spending his 16th birthday in a Mexican prison. Now. <laughs> We're not really sure what he did or anything like that, but when he got out, he headed back up to Alaska, spent the rest of his years uh, living in the backwoods of Alaska and everything like that. And um, so I, I kind of claim that's where my adventure spirit comes from. 
You kind of get an honest man, some stories. I bet there are some stories there. <laughs> wow. That's cool. <laughs> so, so you, so you mentioned you, you came here, you were in green bank, uh, which is, that's a very cool place, especially even if you're not, you know, a scientist or, or um, any technologist around that, just, just the nature of what goes on there and it went on there historically, just a very cool place. Not only the nature of what goes on there, but I came at a time where there was about, I would say, uh, seven or eight engineers, electrical engineers, that were in the process of retiring from the place. And they needed somebody to hand their work off to. They needed somebody that wanted to learn their trade. Um, and I spent hours upon hours just learning from those people. Yeah, that's cool, man. The, the, a lifetime of, of learnings being able to condense and delivered in that way. That's a That's a cool opportunity. Um, in addition to just being in that cool place. Uh, so, all right. So, so then you, you've got this opportunity to go to Antarctica, which is, um, you know, opportunity of a lifetime kind of thing, but, but is not, you know, like uh, on the beach with a Mai Tai, right? There's a lot of challenges there too. I'd love to hear, you know, how you got that opportunity and, and kind of what all went along with that. Well, the, the first part of the opportunity came when um, I got called out to fix the telescope late one night. Um, of course, down in Green Bank, you know, it's, it's 10 below zero. There's about a foot of snow on the ground. Um, I drive through the snow, get to the telescope, have to climb, you know, a couple hundred feet in the air. Um, took me about 45 minutes, but I got it repaired, came down, and the astronomer then was working with a team of other astronomers to, um, to go to Antarctica and to actually set up an observatory at the South Pole. Uh, well, once he saw what I did in the cold there, he... he you know, said, hey, are you interested in this? He gave me the contact information of a place called Yerkes Observatory. And, um, of course, the, the Yerkes Observatory never responded to me. So um, I was driving by there one time, and I had was on the motorcycle. And I just figured, I'm just going to stop in and say hello. See, you know, see what's going on. Um, I stopped there. Went to the door, knocked on the door. They told me everybody's gone. When I came back out, there was some older guy looking at my motorcycle. That older guy turned out to be the director of polar operations for the Center for Astrophysical Research in Antarctica. Wow. So um, him and I started up a conversation. And, um, you know, before I knew it, I signed my name on the dotted line to uh, go to the South Pole, which is the uh, very bottom of the Earth, and spend 13 months there taking care of telescopes. Wow. So you, you kind of had your job interviewed climbing a pole here in West Virginia in the middle of the, the weather. Yeah. Then a serendipitous <laughs> visit with the guy who calls the shots. Uh, boy, the chances. Life yeah. is just such a mystery. Uh, so, all right. So you're there. Um, I, I can imagine that post. I mean, you, you've obviously, you were already away from home. You knew what that kind of was like. But being away from civilization, I mean, I know there's a small, small crew there. But wow. I mean, help walk us through. Most of us have never experienced anything like that. Walk us through that experience. So my first year, there was about 100 of us during the summertime there at the South Pole Station. Now, keep in mind, to get there, you fly from New Zealand to McMurdo Station, McMurdo Station down to the South Pole. Okay. And so altogether, by the time you leave the United States here, it takes you close to seven to eight days to get to the South Pole. Um, so you arrive there. There's about 100 people for the summertime, which is about three months long. Then station closing occurs in February. When that closing happens, we cut the crew down to 20, 28 people. So for the next nine months, the only people you would see are those 28 people. 
Nobody comes or goes from the station and you're completely isolated from the rest of the world. Now, the other aspect of that is for six months of that, it's in complete darkness. And, you know, people people always talk, talk about the cold and how bad it is and stuff like that. I actually viewed the darkness as being worse than the cold. Just everybody kind of developed a sense of insomnia. And that insomnia, you know, you, you try going for three weeks with only two hours of sleep a night. And look at how you're treating the people around you. You're, you're in confined space and stuff like that. So that's, I think that's one of the places where the real challenge came up. But there was also an extreme cool factor there. Because you're down there in the darkness, and every day I'd have to walk one kilometer to work. And on that one kilometer, I'd follow a flag line, and you had no no lights, and there you were looking at the stars in the southern sky. It The stars were so bright, you could actually see the dust in the Milky Way reflecting light of the stars. Oh, man. And then all of a sudden, the aurora would start up. And the aurora was bright enough when you're standing at the South Pole that it would literally cast a shadow. And then your shadow would move as the aurora danced around the sky. So there's only a very few people that actually get to experience that. Um, you know, now the coldness, that, that was a whole nother story because you know to, to be able to say to yourself, wow, I am so glad it warmed up to 80 below zero. <laughs> wow. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the, the cold is, you can, it's hard to fathom. I mean, we're in a cold snap right now here, and, you know, it's touched down zero down below, up just above, and it feels like, you know, it's impossible. Um, that's a that's a temperature I don't even think I can fathom, and I've been in some cold temperatures. Well, it, a lot of us, your gear. I mean, a lot of us, the gear and stuff like that, and, you know, when you are when you go outside, you wear 35, 40 pounds of clothes down there. Gosh. Well, you know, I love the juxtaposition, the, the darkness. I mean, it, come, come this time of year or shortly thereafter, after the winter's coming through, I mean, it gets pretty, pretty tough even around here in this climate. We get all four seasons and I love every one of them, but towards the end of winter, man, you're feeling it. I cannot imagine yeah. six months of darkness and cold, but I love the juxtaposition which you talk about. I mean, that, that is that maybe the darkest place on the earth, right? So you can see all of that amazing uh, show that's up. It sounds like a fantasy novel to be able to see that kind of thing in that experience. So it's so awesome. That That's what's wild. Yeah. The, the night sky is the most impressive in the entire world. Down wow. There. That's crazy. Well, I'll tell you, so, all right. So then, um, so, so almost in a complete juxtaposition, we go in your, and I don't know whether this is sequential or not, but you end up, tell me how you went from Antarctica to Africa and how's that connection and, and what happens there? Well, basically what I started to do after I'd leave Antarctica, they would drop you off in New Zealand and I would trade my ticket in for a round the world ticket. Oh, so I would just fly to a country. I'd put a thousand dollars in my pocket and I would wander around the country. I'd hitchhike or travel, whichever means I could. Um, until I ran out of money and then I would put another thousand dollars and go to the next country. Um, and that's how I lived for a, a long time. And then I'd come back to the States, work for some universities, go back to Antarctica, back and forth. So that got me acclimated to being able to travel. And by travel, I don't mean what most people do here. So when I would travel, I, I tell everybody that, you know, um, when I was, uh, in my, mid thirties was the first time I'd ever made a reservation in my life. So I would fly into like, uh, Australia, Indonesia, I would get off the plane. And my first job was to want, and keep in mind, this is before the days of cell phone. 
my first job was to wander around the city or town or wherever I was and find a place to sleep for the night. Wow. That's awesome. That's traveling. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me live, let me continue to let us live vicariously through your travels. And then we'll, I want to talk about your entrepreneurial journey and what else is going on. But so, so then enter South America. Um, I think, didn't you just recently take a motorcycle ride, like all around the country basically, or all around the continent, basically? No, not through South America yet. I had, I had planned oh, okay. to, I I'd planned okay. to, and um, some things happened in my life and, you know, with my kids and that, and it's like, okay, I couldn't do that this summer. And that's when I transitioned to the motorcycle trip to Africa, which will occur later. Um, ah. And I did, I did actually recently just take a, a four day trip. I found, so what I do is I find really cheap airline tickets and I don't really care where they go to. And if it's going to a place where I can rent a motorcycle, then I'll rent a motorcycle and travel around that country. Uh, some, and I just spent four days touring uh, the jungles of Colombia on motorcycle. Yeah, I've, I've got a buddy who does a bunch of that, and he just says the best way to see whatever country you're in. It's just amazing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that that's awesome. So, okay, so from one journey of traveling just physically to another journey, your entrepreneurial journey, um, you know, I would love to hear kind of how you got started on that. And then let's talk a little bit about extreme endeavors and what you're doing there. But but how did you get started down this path? Because entrepreneurialism is not for everybody. And it's and it's a, it's a it's an interesting road, just as if riding a motorcycle in countries you've never been to aren't for everybody yeah. either. Yes. So um, I actually started the originally started the business in a motel room in Colorado. Um, I was hiring a crew on to go to Antarctica uh, for the 98-99 winter over, um, which everybody may have heard about that. The Dr. Jerry Nielsen story of the lady with breast cancer stranded down there. Um, I was station manager when that happened. And uh, so, but I started the company there just to do a random job for Lucent Technologies. Um, I then take a crew. I go to Antarctica for a year. And as I'm sitting down there, I'm thinking, okay, you know, my, my Antarctica career is winding down. I'm in my early thirties. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, where do you, where do you move on from there? And I thought there's no way I could go back and have a job where I sat behind a cubicle or, you know, like I, I interviewed with um, Verizon one time and they said, well, you're not allowed to cloud, climb the towers because we have union rules that, you know, engineers can't be on the towers. I thought, I, I can't handle that. There, there's no way I could sit down and watch somebody else climb the tower. So I figured, you know, why don't I just continue with my own business because I really don't know what else to do with my life. Um, and Originally, what I did is I focused the business on doing support services for scientists. Interesting. Okay. So you had support services in there. And then let's walk down that path of, of so was that Extreme Endeavors at that point? Or was that just the beginning of your entrepreneurial? Okay. So that was Extreme Adventures. Now, what has what, what have you done since then? Because you're doing a lot more than just supporting scientists on the back yeah. end now. So, well, well, we started supporting scientists. And when I moved the business back to West Virginia. Mainly, the main reason I moved the business to West Virginia is, you know, I'm a, I was a single person starting a business. I knew I need to keep my overhead low. Okay. And that's my whole basis behind where I started the business and what I'm doing here. So I, I moved the business here and I started working it. And my first contract, believe it or not, was actually to measure the rebound of the Transantarctic Mountains for NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, and so we, you know, had scientists come to actually at the time it was in Buchanan, West Virginia. We actually had scientists from NASA come to Buchanan, um, 
I don't think a lot of people believed us when I told them what we were doing. Um, but we, we did the job. We got it done for the scientists and stuff like that. But then we found we were looking for other ways to make money. So we started to get involved in the SBIR program and government contracting. Now, there was a lot of political stuff going on with technology, politics, and everything like that in the state. And I chose to stay clear of that. Um, and people can read the book if they want to know why and stuff like that. But I chose to stay clear of that. And when 2007, 2008 hit, I noticed all the government money dried up. When that money dried up, I noticed all those businesses that were involved in that, they basically went away. Or most of them did, I should say. Well, what we found is we transitioned then from doing government contracting. We had a water company that came up to us. Okay, And I, I should mention also, one of the second contracts we got was with um, um, Greer Industries where they called us up and they wanted us to monitor hellhole and schoolhouse caves for some government permitting. Well, hellhole was right up extreme in Denver's Alley because it's a 180 foot drop to get into the cave. So um, we have now been doing that project for over 19 years, 19, 20 years right now. Um, but we took that technology that was in the cave and we changed it so that it could be used to automate water systems. Because the local Central Barber PSD here in Barber County said that they had had other systems installed. They just didn't work. And so they said, you know, you guys, I'm sure can do better. You know, let's try something. And so we built one of the first, and this is back in 2008, 2009. We built an Internet of Things system for automating their water supply. And that's what then led down this road of how can we improve water throughout the world? Wow, that's that's amazing. So, all right, so so you you come to West Virginia, low cost of living. You'd you'd been here before down in Green Bank, uh, but what 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 brought you to Philippi of of places? Which, by the way, I say that not like nothing good comes out of Philippi. I mean, I found my wife there, and so yeah, it's huh. all right. There's good things in Philippi, but yeah. but what brought you there? Well, I mean, Philippi isn't necessarily known as a technology hub of North Central West Virginia, just like Grafton isn't either. And my company's here. Yes, yes. So. So one of the things that brought me here originally was I was looking for a hub zone certification for federal contracting, uh, right? I, I don't have any classifications. Um, you know, I'm not veteran owned. I'm not, um, you know, woman owned, whatever, and stuff like that. So I figured, okay, I can get the hub zone status. And um, honestly, Philippi was just kind of the, the people here were like, yeah, go ahead. We'll, we'll leave you alone. We'll let you do whatever business you want to do. And, um, nice. you know, the, you don't get, how do you want to say it? it's for me, I can also take a rural spot and I can make anything happen there. But if you put me in the middle of a big city, one, I'm going to be miserable. And two is, um, I'm not going to, you know, it's like, do you remember the uh, propane tanks that blew up down Gent, West Virginia? Yeah. We did the investigative work for the Chemical Safety and Hazards Investigation Board for that, where we had to assemble a federal evidence holding pen. Well, I just got a dozer, ripped out a piece of land, and I built myself a federal evidence holding pen to do that contract. You can't do that in the middle of the city. Yeah, right. <laughs> having the remote environment, having the, um, the... Also, the other thing is, is Philippi happened to be ideally situated 
because they were one of the first cities to install fiber optics. Yeah, that's so right. So I've got a rural yeah. building here in the middle of nowhere. I've got a building and I've got a light pipe running directly to my office. You can't ask for anything better. Yeah, and that's it's cheap. amazing. Yeah, now that they were way, I mean, way ahead of yeah. the pack on that stuff, which is which is great. So, okay, so that that's all awesome. So, so extreme endeavors. I mean, you you are following a true entrepreneurial spirit, finding gaps, reusing this thing, finding this here. So, so what is what is next as we kind of go down the extreme endeavors path? What's next in your in your world? Well, for the next for uh, overall for the company, okay, what we're looking to do is. My goal is to be able to have, say, I have, have electronics that I have designed and worked on, on all continents, okay? And I've gotten, I've got three down so far, uh, North America, South America, and um, Africa now. So, but our goal, our, our goal beside that is improvement of quality of life with water. So here in America, in, in West Virginia, what we've done is we've been able to revolutionize how they control water. We've increased the stability tremendously. And, you know, any of our customers will attest to that. We've increased the stability. We've um, allowed them to, you know, just be able to pick up their phone and hit a few buttons and stuff like that. And it's a much, much stabler system than the old PLC networks. Um, so what we're looking to do is how can we take that to other places and benefit them? Now, in Peru, it just so happens that they're, they're mining and they're farming have found applications for it, um, which, you know, is, is good business. Uh, the people are nice and that's, you know, kind of how you have to rate it is one, I have to enjoy going there. The food has to be good and Peruvian food is, is incredible. So, and you'd have to be able to make money. So, so Peru fits that bill fairly well. Africa is a very similar, similar beast and stuff like that. But the benefit that the Africans can see from it, is, is tremendous because in Africa, in Ethiopia, if you buy public drinking water and you have water coming to your house, you get water one day a week and then they shut it off. And for six days you're without water and that's their standard. Well, that's because of their circular, the power grid and the trouble keeping pumps running and everything they have to do to pull the water out of the wells and everything is not treated water either. So our goal is, is to go into the cities of Africa and while other people are working in the, the villages and that, trying to get water from the ground to the villagers, digging wells and that, we're going into the cities where they already have water systems and we're enhancing those and we're putting automation on those so that we could get their water supplies to run for five, six, seven days a week. Wow. So instead of the impact of a village of 250 people, we're looking at in Ethiopia alone impacting 10, 20 million people. That, that's fascinating. So obviously what's abroad to us is somebody else's community and likewise the opposite. But, you know, so in our communities here in West Virginia, I mean, I, I, I'm just assuming the value here is, you know, there's if, if you've got a break, you can track there. There's, so it reduces waste. It's, it's management, all that, which saves municipalities and ultimately the, the, the payers, our customers, the consumers money. Right. So, I mean, that's primarily what you're doing here. Yeah. Here it pays for itself. Right. Because yeah. you have to if you have a water system, you would have to hire somebody to drive around and turn pumps on and off. And that one person, you'd have their labor, the cost of the truck, the gas for the truck, the insurance, everything like that. So 
a system can pay for itself in say six months to a year and a half here. Yeah. Well, in Africa, it's a little bit different because labor is so cheap. Right. And sure. in certain places, it's like they don't have trucks. So they just pay people to walk around. So it's like you walk five miles and turn on this pump for me. Yeah. Yeah. But if, but, but from an outcome perspective, if you're get, if you're, if you're able to take a city to be able to put out, put water out five more days than they can do this, this, exactly. this, uh, in current, you're saving lives. I mean, I don't want to over, overstate it, but here you're saving money, which is great, but you, that's a, that's a massive improvement of quality of life there. Right. Can't and imagine. also you have to look at it as it's an economic growth for them as well. Sure. Yeah. Just like we, you remember the fire triangle, tri, the fire triangle from uh, high school where you had to have yeah, sure. heat, fuel and well, for economic development, there's a nexus between energy, water, and food. Sure. So to be able to provide decent economic development, you have to be able to provide that water. So it's, it goes beyond just the beyond quality of life. And it's also an economic development tool within the cities and that. Yeah. Try, try to grow any kind of economy or industrialization or anything without water. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's amazing. Okay. So, so, all right. So now just recently, I think you, you just published a book, right? So extreme yeah. endeavors and entrepreneurial's journey from Antarctica to Ethiopia. Okay, man, you had time on your hands, right? You're not doing anything. So why not write a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, so what, what led you to say, all right, I'm going to write this book. What are you trying to do with it? What's uh, obviously, you know, folks can get it anywhere. You can get books, right? Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you go, right? Yeah. So, so the, the whole idea behind the book was a couple of reasons. One is we're expanding internationally to have something that can tell the story that can get us into doors. Um, and it's, it's a great, you know, it's good for marketing and such. Um, but it also just turned out to be something fun to do. Uh, so, you know, and, and you can generate revenue from it and stuff. So it fits the business model and everything like that. But overall, I think that it also, it, it, it spurs business development ideas. And so as I started the book, I just started writing it, but then I started to realize that there was business lessons involved in that. And the same you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. And the lessons that I learned in starting this, running this and growing it, there at the end of every chapter are those lessons. Yeah, that that's, uh, that's awesome. Um, I, I mean, I, I love, I love how it's, it's this idea of the journey and, and taking opportunities, taking risks, uh, all that stuff. I mean, that is, that is quintessential to the entrepreneurial's journey, no or entrepreneur's journey, no question. Um, so I'd love to, you know, so what, what, what nuggets can you provide that you've, you know, kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like mantras or philosophies or experiences or whatever that you can provide in your journey and all that we've talked about and, and, and so much more, we can't cover anybody's life in a, in a short podcast, but what are some of those things along the way that you thought, you know, th this is, this is really valuable that I've, I, I could share with folks, uh, that may be looking to start their journey, whether it be in entrepreneurism or, uh, science, technology, industrial support, whatever it may be. Well, I think, so So I opened the book up with a story about um, pulling a tractor axle off of a 953B Caterpillar tractor. Um, and, you know, normally that's not a, not a tough job and stuff like that. But when you have to walk a mile and a half and it's 95 below zero outside to do that, and you need a sledgehammer to break the grease free and stuff like that. And 
that one day caused me to stop and realize I was having a good time. That to me was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. How did I ever get here? And that caused me to look backwards. And I realized that a lot of this started, you know, when, when I was 15, I went to work in a slaughterhouse as a cleanup boy. Oh, and it was the worst job, job you could ever imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. But it was the most, the best job I ever had also. Because the first day of job, that job, I said, I'm going to school. And that gave me the drive and focus and pointed me in the direction. And that's the basic learning for an entrepreneur is you need to have that focus and that drive and just, just laser focus. If it's not working, you have to find a different way. So that was one of the first lessons that I learned. But then as I started to grow the business, I learned that um, it wasn't always about the quick dollar, right? I could have walked into situations where I had multiple millions of dollars worth of contracts and stuff like that, but I held off and I chose the, the um, uh, ethical way to go. And um, in the long run, I really believe that benefited me. And it's, it's just a matter of taking care of people and dealing with relations. I mean, you know, when I started this business, I thought that I could design the best technology and we did, but that didn't cause the business to grow. What caused my business to grow is picking up the phone, saying hello to people. When a customer calls, I jump on the phone with them as quickly as possible. That's, yeah, I thought it was complicated, but it's really not. <laughs> you know, it's a great point, but I will say you have to have that best technology as table stakes to have a conversation, but yeah. people... It's yeah. people. I mean, you're exactly right. People and perseverance yeah. from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Yeah. You're okay. You're smart. You got good ideas. You got good technology. You got good products, whatever it is. People and perseverance, man. I yeah. completely mm -hmm. agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's great. Hey, so let me ask you this. So, so you're a Washington native, obviously you, you moved to West Virginia. We've talked about that. You've been here long enough. Hey, you're, you're a mountaineer at this point, but, but I would love your perspective um, because I think as you know, West Virginians, whether you grow up here or you're living here, it's so easy to pick on West Virginia uh, with with the challenges we may have, whether it be socioeconomic or or whatever, right? Health, health, all the things that the outside world tells us is why it's terrible to be here. But but I would contend there are tons of really great reasons to be here. Um, and I think you mentioned, you know, even the strength of your business being where it is, it's giving you some advantages. I would love to hear any perspective you have as a guy who's traveled the world, not having been necessarily raised here. Uh, have come here, chose to put your business here, are building a, a, a world-class technology business that's offering huge benefits around the world. What what West Virginia magic is here for you? I mean, what's what's the value here and what can you share with others? Well, first, first I always want to say that I'm almost afraid to say this because if I tell people the good stuff, they'll want to come here. <laughs> I get it. I get so, it. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know if I should even say anything now, but, but you know, at, at the end of the day, on my drive home, I can stop and I can go for a four mile hike through the woods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can grab my kayak, throw it in the, the river here and, you know, right after work be kayaking or, you know, I'm coming back from a job and stuff like that. The, the other thing is, is the people that you work with here. I mean, generally like I've been called out by water districts at, you know, three or four in the morning where they have an emergency, you know, the place might be on fire, and the first thing they ask me, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. That's why you come to West Virginia. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's a great place to be. Mike, I, I, as, a, as a courtesy on this program, we always give the last word to the guests. What is it you'd like to tell the, the folks at home listening or watching this? Well, so what we're, what we're doing as a company in the near future here um, is, you know, as I had some bad things happen in my life and everybody does in their life and stuff like that. So what my, and this is kind of in the last part of the book is basically when those things happen, you set your goals and you just focus on those. So a couple of goals that I had is, um, first of all, we're, you know, I, me and my kids, we are a, we're a martial arts family. So I'm going to test for my third degree black belt um, with USA Martial Arts out of Morgantown. And then also um, I've partnered with another business um, with um, Property Wise out of Buchanan Genie uh, down there. And we are going to fly to Kenya, rent motorcycles, and then travel up through Ethiopia, visiting water, you know, water districts along the way, and everything like that. Just as a so, so that's kind. Of, and uh, the other goal to that is Ethiopia contains a place called the Donical Depression, which is known as the hottest place on Earth. So then I can say I've been from the coldest place to the hottest place. Okay, um, and in doing that, um, I hope to raise some awareness for water and stuff like that. So. You know, maybe in the near future and stuff like that, if you want to do a, another podcast, we could do it from uh, the middle of the salt flats in Donakil, Ethiopia. Oh, man. Talk about extreme endeavors right there. I would love to do that. That would be great. Let's definitely uh, plan on that. Mike, it's been great having you on this program. I'm, I'm loving your story. Uh, your book's going to be great, I'm sure. So, folks, again, if you're interested, Extreme Endeavors, uh, let me make sure I get the, the, the subtext right on Extreme Endeavors, an entrepreneur's journey from Antarctica to Ethiopia. Mike Masterman with Extreme Endeavors, uh, author, founder, extraordinary, adventure extraordinaire. Appreciate you coming on the program and good luck in all you're doing. And, and we're glad you're here in, in West Virginia. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks. Bye bye. Hey, everyone. Just after recording the Mike Masterman episode, you know, we sent it off to JD, who, who reviews all of our podcasts as a producer, and he texted me and, and wanted to talk a little bit about it. So I'm going to give him a buzz, and I thought maybe you guys could just, just come along with me. Hey, Alec, how you doing today, man? Hey, J.D., I'm good. How about yourself? Ah, big plane, man. Hey, I listened to Mike's episode, man. That, that's a heck of a story. I'm going to tell you right now, he's inspired a lot of things. But, you know, he's an engineer and I'm a welder. Not that we ever argue, you know, in my line of work or anything. So, But he did inspire me, you know, being from Grafton, you know, and everything. I'm thinking about building a motorcycle out of old railroad parts and taking her for a ride. Wow, seriously? I mean, I know, I know Mike was initially going to go and drive down, drive around South America. He's done lots of that kind of thing, and, and maybe even to Chile, uh, which I know a lot of guys will do, but now he'll be riding in Ethiopia soon, and we might bring him back on the, the show to talk about it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that makes total sense now. I thought he said he was going for Chile in Antarctica. Wow, that just found out that was wrong. But uh, knowing about him mentioned about Africa, now I'm on my way. That oil tanker about took me out. Anyway, now I'm on my way back home to Grafton and try some this mayo on the pepperoni rolls that we've seen on the old TV and see what all the hubbub's about. I get it. Yeah, you must have misheard. It was going to Chile, as in the country, not going for Chile. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're on a you're on a motorcycle and you drove to Antarctica, then then to Africa, and now back home to Grafton. Grafton. 
need to understand this a little better. Wait, did you just say you're coming back to try some mayo on pepperoni roll? Dude, you gotta help me. Alex, 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 man, hey man, I hate to go, but uh, we're gonna pick it up another time. I had some power at someone else trying to board my bike and steal my pepperoni roll. Get away, you scallywag, not today! Aha! I load man down. I All hands on dead! Holy smokes. Well, um, that's JD. Okay. Well, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot that we're going to really need to unpack from that call. Um, whew. I think I'm going to need a nap first though. I guess, Hey, thanks for joining us. And until next time, I guess we could all take a page out of JD's book and live unleashed.